so I am. Um, I feel like it would be inappropriate to begin today without addressing the elephant in the room <laughs> before we get started. Now, I have to, like first service, I have to give credit for that dad joke to Robert Bennett. I don't know where he's sitting, but he's the bass player. Um, you have to have been a dad for a long time to make a dad joke at that level. That's advanced, that's advanced stuff. My 18 months of dadhood does not earn me the right to make jokes like that. But I was happy to because nobody gives Robert a mic to say what he's thinking. So there's your elephant joke for the day. I also just have to start by saying that this giraffe, which used to be stored down in, in like a barn that we had on property we used to have, and that giraffe has scared me more times and I know there's other people from that era. I saw Stephen Parker here earlier. I know you've been scared by the giraffe on multiple occasions. Bobby, you probably have been as well. There, it was just in this big warehouse, and it looks really goofy and fun and friendly right now. But when you're going into an old barn by yourself to get you know, music equipment or whatever, and you open the doors, and that's what's looking at you, it's something out of a horror movie. So you know, with that out of the way, um, we are kind of rounding the corner here in our Moses Destroyer of the Gods series, and I, I hope that you guys have been enjoying this. We've been enjoying it immensely. And we honestly, we wish we had made this series even longer. There's so many incredible stories we could tell. And today, we are coming to, without a doubt, the most famous part of the Old Testament, possibly the most famous part of the entire Bible. It's the Ten Commandments, is what we typically call them. And um, the exciting thing about what we're doing today is we get the opportunity to talk about these commandments in the part of the story that they belong in. Often, um, you know, they, they have such kind of pop culture resonance because of movies and other things in public. We don't think of them as part of the story that they belong in, in the story of God's rescue of his people from Egypt and setting them up to enter into the promised land. And so if you've been coming consistently through this series, we're going to get to see these commandments where they belong in the story of God's rescue of his people from out of Egypt. And we've seen some incredible things already. We've seen God in the burning bush speak to Moses on Mount Sinai, send him to rescue his people from Egypt. We've seen the plagues of Egypt by which God himself says he is enacting judgments upon the gods of Egypt and showing them to be weak in comparison to him and unable to protect their land or their people from him when he's freeing his firstborn son, Israel, from Egypt. Last couple of weeks, we saw God bring the Israelites through the Red Sea on dry land by parting the sea, another really famous moment in scripture, and then bringing those waters of chaos back down onto Pharaoh's army. And last week, we saw God lead Israel through the wilderness and show them through hunger and thirst that he and he alone is their source of sustenance. He's the one they need to look to to provide for them. And today, we arrive at the moment of the giving of the Ten Commandments. When Israel arrives at Mount Sinai, approximately seven weeks after they leave Egypt, this is like the moment that the text has been building up to since chapter three. We don't necessarily see it that way, but in chapter three, God tells Moses, tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can serve me on this mountain. The very mountain where, where the burning bush, where God in the burning bush speaks to Moses. And so for the next 17 chapters after that, we're waiting for God to come through with that, that his people will serve and worship him on that same mountain. And so in Exodus chapter 19, the people of Israel finally arrive at Mount Sinai. And when they do, Moses goes up to meet God. And God tells him, you saw what I did in Egypt. You saw how I rescued you and brought you out of Egypt on eagles' wings. And now, if you'll obey my covenant, if you'll obey these commandments, then I 
am going to make you my treasured possession among the nations. And then he says this. This is easy to skip, but incredibly significant for understanding all of the commands. He says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is explaining to them what the end goal of these commands are. Not just the Ten Commandments, but all of the laws that are going to follow them. And the goal is to create Israel, to create out of Israel a nation that will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A holy nation means that Israel will be set apart. They'll be unique among all of the nations of the world. And the goal is, is really straightforward. It's so that they can be a kingdom of priests. Now, if you're a person living in the ancient Near Eastern world, or honestly, like most of the world today, the idea of a kingdom of priests is super weird because a priest is like a specialized class of person. A priest is the person who represents God to the people and the people to God. And so even within Israel, there is going to be like a specialized family, the Levites, who will become the priests for Israel. But he says, overall, my intention is that Israel is a kingdom of priests, an entire kingdom whose role it is to represent God to the nations. It's like that same vocation that was given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2 is being passed on to Israel nationally. You are going to go and represent me to all the nations. And in light of that, there's a particular way that you need to live. Because if you want to represent me accurately, you can't live like everyone else does. And then God comes to Mount Sinai in dramatic fashion. And I want to actually read this because it's the kind of thing, like sometimes you're reading descriptions in the Bible, especially if you see like the Ten Commandments are next, and you're just flying through it. But I want you to imagine this, really picture this event taking place. It's, it's hugely significant. It says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. When Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. Keep in mind, we've talked about this a few times already, but when you're reading the Old Testament and you see the word Lord, and it's written in all capital letters like that, that's not the title Lord. That's translating the personal name Yahweh, the name given to Moses at the burning bush. So I'm, I'm trying to read the text that way so that you hear the personal nature of this whole discourse. This is not just any God talking. This is Yahweh, the God of Israel. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. I mean, that is like sensory overload of every sense. You see this mountain, and the presence of God comes down on it with fire and smoke and lightning and trumpet blasts that are getting louder and louder and louder. Moses is not going to go up on some random mountain by himself and spend a few days up there. This is how a lot of religions get their start. He's not going to come down from a mountain and just be like, hey guys, while I was up there, God told me a bunch of stuff. And I know you couldn't see him or hear him, but this is from God, I promise. And the people of Israel see the presence of God on the mountain displayed in such dramatic fashion that there is going to be no mistake for anyone about who the source of these laws are. Moses isn't making this up. That's what the narrative's supposed to show you. The power and might of God are on display. He is the source. And so Moses, this just makes Moses seem so epic, like all the fire and smoke and trumpet blasts, and Moses is like, 
all right, and he just goes walking into it. It's incredible. And it's in that situation that God speaks the ten words. We call them the Ten Commandments. The Bible calls them words. These are ten words that are foundational for the rest of the laws that are going to come for Israel, 613 total to be exact, over the rest of the next couple of books of the Bible. And so here you have, like, the, the closest analogy we have is, like, the ten words are the Constitution. They're not exhaustive. They're generalized, and they're, they're like the bedrock principles upon which all of the rest of the laws of Israel are going to be built. Moses receives them in this specific moment and for that specific purpose that God gave. You're going to be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So right here between Egypt and Canaan, this is what I'm telling you, corporate Israel. This is the kind of behavior that I want, the kind of behavior that I don't want. And God starts like this. It says, and God spoke all these words, saying, so this is like the summary statement that starts, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Once again, this is the kind of thing that you could just jump past and go like, all right, get me to the first commandment. But this is foundational. This is like the, the interpretive grid for the rest of it. He starts by saying, who's giving these commandments? It's not some ambiguous God who knows who. This is Yahweh and it's on the basis of what I just did for you. So God says, I am the God who rescued you from Egypt. I'm the God who rescued you from out of slavery. And on the basis of that rescue, this is the type of obedience that I want in return. We're going to spend the majority of our time on the first four of the commandments um, because they're, they're foundational for the kind of purpose of the story we're telling. But you're going to see how kind of all of them cumulatively build onto each other. So he says, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, specifically because of kind of the nature of the series that we're doing here, it's really worth noting that God does not say, there are no gods besides me. He tells Israel, a people who have just spent 400 years in polytheistic Egypt, he tells them, you will have no other gods before or besides me. Now, Israel had spent generations and generations living in Egypt. We've talked about it a lot in this series, but Egypt is like the world superpower of the ancient Near East at the time. And that means to everyone that their gods are the most powerful gods. The prophet Ezekiel tells us that not many of the Israelites were faithful during this time, meaning most of them had turned and worshiped those other gods. It means like whatever profession you're a part of, whatever, part, whatever area you live in geographically, whatever kind of interests you have, whatever needs you have at that moment, there would be a whole range of gods that you would be serving, that you would be performing rituals for because you're trying to get favors with them. God says, you serve one God only. And this is hard for us to understand or relate to in the modern world because as modern Western people, converting to Christianity or like becoming any kind of religious person at all, for the most part, doesn't mean going from a bunch of gods to one god. For us, it usually means going from not believing in God at all to believing in God. You see the difference? In the modern Western world, it's like people don't believe that there is a God, and then they come to believe that there is a God. That's not the situation for Israel. Israel is being told, you're going to go from serving all of these dozens, if not hundreds of gods, to serving just one me. 
You're not going to serve the gods of Egypt. You're not going to serve the gods of Canaan. You're going to serve only me. And we actually have examples of situations that are more like this from all around the world. Some of my, I'm the mission pastor here. Some of my friends in foreign countries that we work in have direct experience that's much more like this. A lot of my friends in Cambodia, before they were Christians, they wore a red bracelet around their wrist to protect them from evil spirits. It's an incredibly common practice in a lot of that part of the world. How many of you guys have ever seen something like this before, um, either in your past or in your family or something like that? Now, um, the red cord of protection is something that many of my Cambodian friends wore because they had seen the effects of the spiritual world and they believed that was the best way for them to protect themselves. Another kind of similar practice that's really common in Cambodia and kind of Southeast Asia in general is the, the creation of what's called a spirit house. Out in your front yard, you would build something that kind of looks like a birdhouse, except it's like a temple-looking thing, but on a pole like a birdhouse or a mailbox. And they would put in that spirit house food and drink and incense and kind of other offerings to try to lure the evil spirits into that instead of their house. It's like, hey, I don't want you in my house. I'm going to make something for you to live in. Now, here's something super creepy. If you go to Tanzania, which is in East Africa, thousands of miles away, culture that developed completely independently from Cambodia, they do the exact same thing. There they call them demon huts, and they look different, but it's the exact same idea. Kind of creepy. I have nothing to say about it other than think about it later and creep yourself out. Here's another great example. This is a friend of mine that I met in Cambodia. His name's Mom Sayet. Like many men his age, he fought in the war during the most kind of brutal, violent time in Cambodia's history. And he at the time, he's a Christian now, but at the time he got all of these spiritual tattoos to protect himself. He told me specifically, I got these tattoos to protect me from bullets. He fought in the Cambodian People's Army and he believed that he could invoke the power of the spiritual world and the spiritual beings in it to protect him by marking his body with all of these markings. He says, now I'm a Christian, I, I know that I don't have to fear any of that anymore, that I can trust in Jesus, that he's stronger than those spirits, but he bears on his body the marks of that old allegiance. And so what you need to understand is that when, when God tells Israel, you have no other gods but me, it's not like a, yeah, duh, there's only one God. That's how most of us think about it. To Israel, this is a huge thing to ask, and it's of central importance. He's saying, cut the red cord. And I'm telling you, there is no more powerful symbol of someone becoming a Christian on the planet than somebody cutting that red cord off their wrist. Many Christians in Cambodia, it takes them a long time. They come to faith in Jesus, they start going to church, and I met Christians who still had spirit houses. I met Christians who were still wearing that red cord because there's, there's still fear there, and they're working through it. Here God says, if you want to be a kingdom of priests... If you want to represent me to the rest of the nations, I'm the only God you serve. You no longer serve Hopi and Heket and Hathor and Amun-Ra and Osiris. You're not going to serve, when you get to Canaan, you're not going to serve the Ashtaroth or the Baals or Chemosh or Molech. You're not going to serve any of those gods. You are going to serve me only. And that will make you unique. That'll make you a holy nation. That'll make you a kingdom of priests. The second command builds on it. He says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Excuse me. 
Once again, if you lived in Egypt before this, like all of the Israelites did, you were used to just idols absolutely everywhere. That's how most of the ancient world was. It's how the first century world even is for the most part by the time Jesus is around. There's idols everywhere. There's an idol for every profession, for every hobby, for every need, for every geographical area, and they're representations usually of something from nature. In Egypt, it's like a lot of dogs and cats and birds and things like that, and a lot of things that are like a human body with an animal's head. This is stuff that if you're an Egypt nerd, you've probably seen stuff. How many of you guys went to the Rosicrucian Museum at some point on a field trip? The rest of you guys should go. It's still cool. I haven't been there in a long time, but I'm, I'm pretty confident in saying that. Just go, okay? Don't ask questions. Just go. That's your homework this week. Read the Bible and go to the Rosicrucian Museum. Everyone's like, what is that? It's in Egypt. Is it in San Jose? Yeah. yeah, okay. That's how long it's been since I've been there. Anyway, gosh, okay. Idols everywhere. How do you understand gods in that world? You see their representation. That's what you bow to. That's what you serve. God says, you guys do not make images of me, period. You don't make images of other gods or bad down to them, and you don't make anything that's an image of me. Why not? Now, in the Israelite story that they inherit from their forefathers, according to the way God created the world, what is the image of the one true God? What does God make as his image? Us, humanity, Adam and Eve. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's Genesis 1.27. He makes humanity to be his image. And here he is reclaiming that. He's saying, you want to represent me to the world? You are the image. Not just Moses, because remember, in Egypt, Pharaoh is kind of the king. He's the main representative of the gods. He goes, it's not just Moses. It's the entire nation of Israel. And the plan for the future is that it will be all of humanity. But if you guys want to represent me, you cannot make other images of me. You are the images of me. The second half of this can, can kind of throw people off who are really familiar with the Bible because it says that um, if you bow down to idols and serve them, then God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation. And there's, part, there's other things in the Bible that sound very contradictory to that, where prophets will speak for God and say that God does not punish children for their father's sin and vice versa. But the best way to understand this is to see it as all of the ten words are as a corporate statement. This is not about how if one Israelite worships an idol, then his bloodline will suffer that kind of specific targeted suffering. It's a broad corporate statement. It means if you, as the people of Israel, are idol worshipers, then the punishment for that sin is going to go down from family to family to family. It's going to carry over. And by the way, that's exactly what happens to Israel when they worship idols. The third word, you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Um, if you grew up in the church, your understanding of this verse at some point probably was that to take the name of the Lord in vain means to use a name or title of God as part of an expletive, like a curse word, like you're going to swear but use God's name. A right understanding of this verse, I think, will necessarily include that, but it's a much bigger concept than that. And it has to do with kind of the more ancient understanding of what a name is. Because a name isn't just the sound you make to identify the person that you're talking about or like the letters you write down to identify a specific person. A name in the ancient world and today is also kind of stands in for somebody's reputation or a family's reputation or a group of people's character as it's known out in the world right? So you guys know my name is Sam Whitaker, 
and you could say, hey, Sam Whitaker, and I'll know you're talking to me. But if you see me acting foolishly out in public and embarrassing myself, you could say something like, wow, he's really giving the Whitakers a what? A bad name. I'm not doing anything to that combination of syllables or letters. What I'm doing is giving my family a bad reputation. My dad's in here somewhere going like, yeah, that's exactly what you're doing. <laughs> More specifically to kind of the purpose of this command, you could also see me acting foolishly in public and say, he's giving Christians a bad name because I see him on stage at church and he's acting like this in public. We all know what that means. And so to take the name of Yahweh means to bear that name as a representative. And so if you're going to go and be my representatives before the nations, Israel, which I've already told you is my plan, you had better represent me accurately. And of course that's going to include not like swearing an oath in my name and then not keeping it or saying something perverse and using my name in that. That wouldn't even enter your mind. It's so like if, if the, in the Jewish mind, that's so far off the radar that of course if you're trying to represent God, you don't do that. But it's much bigger than that. It's about that goal of representing God to the nations. To this day, conservative religious Jewish people will not use not only the name of God, Yahweh, they, won't, they often won't say the word God, the noun. When they spell it, they put a dash where the O is a lot of the time. And if they're going to talk about God, they, they say Hashem, which is the Jewish word for name. And so this is, again, about representation. I'm going to put you among the nations, and everyone's going to be able to look at you and know the truth about me. You're going to represent me. It means bear my name correctly. Fourth, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Israel we've already talked about as a kingdom of priests is getting that vocation of Adam again, represent God to the world. And God is here demonstrating that Israel's role is to be like a new creation force. Think about it. In Genesis 1, God separates chaotic waters and causes dry land to appear and then places his image bearers in that dry land, that good land that he makes. And then on the seventh day after creation, he rests. Here, Israel has just seen God part the chaotic waters to create dry land again and bring his image-bearing nation through it. And now he says, when you enter this new garden that I'm giving you, you act like I act. You follow my pattern. You follow the rhythm of life that I set for you. And that includes resting on the seventh day. And by the way, it includes rest for everyone, not just the people who can afford to rest one day a week, but also your servants and the children and the animals and the sojourners and outsiders who don't even belong in Israel but are just there among you. Everyone rests. Unlike in Egypt, where Israel is made to work tirelessly, where the slaves are worked brutally, God says, in my kingdom, when you're representing me, everyone, everyone rests. We'll take the last six together. There's a, a shift here. The first four are primarily about how Israel is to relate to God, and then the last six shift to being more about how Israel is to relate to other human beings. They say, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, 
You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. 20% of the 10 words are about family. I mean, two out of 10 is no joke. God wants his people to flourish in the promised land and represent him well. And that means that children have a good relationship with their parents and that husbands are faithful to their wives and vice versa. Marriage in particular is, is incredibly important because, again, if you're looking at Genesis 1 and 2 for the pattern, God has already made it clear that the relationship of a husband and a wife is meant to mirror his relationship to humanity. So for the rest of the Old Testament, God will describe himself as the groom, as the husband of Israel, and Israel as the wife, the often adulterous wife, right? It says, you shall not murder Unlike Pharaoh, who has all of the babies who are, born, who are male who are born within the land of Egypt in Israelite homes thrown into the Nile, God says, I decide life, and life is precious, so you don't take it. He says, you shall not steal, bear false witness, or covet. And again, this is about the kind of cohesion of the people of Israel as they seek to represent God. You don't take advantage of each other, either with your words or your actions. You don't take from one another. You don't tell lies about each other. In fact, even internally, because coveting is not an external sin, it's something that happens inside your heart and mind. It says, don't even desire the things that your neighbor has, but be content, be unified. Because again, the goal is to represent God to the nations. And after he gives the 10 words, this section ends the way it started with another description of the kind of sensory overload that's happening on the mountain. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. You go on our behalf. And Moses said to the people, this is really funny, watch. Do not fear, for God has come to test you. Why? That the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off when Moses, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Moses says what he says on purpose. It's not a contradiction. He says, don't fear. Don't be in terror. Don't let your relationship with God be defined by like running and hiding from him the way it was with Adam and Eve after the fall. He says, God has shown you this display of power so that you have a healthy fear of him that causes you to be obedient to what he says. And you guys, especially if you're parents, you know the difference between like a healthy, reasonable fear and like an unhealthy terror that just cripples and, and paralyzes you, right? Like you want your kids to be afraid of going out in the street, just the kind of fear that will make them stay on the sidewalk, but not like a fear that would make them hide under their covers afraid that a car is going to come and find them and run them over. You know what I mean? The best example I can think of, because it just happened to me, is I have an 18-month-old daughter, and we love to go camping and backpacking, and my daughter loves dangerous things because she's 18 months old. So she does whatever the most dangerous thing within a 20-foot radius is. She's like, yes, and goes straight for that. So we, you know, we're lighting a campfire at night, and she's like really into the campfire, and she's constantly trying to get to it, and it's super hot, and I spent the whole first night kind of like you know, blocking her from getting to the fire. Didn't even enjoy it myself because I was afraid she was going to go just dive into it at any moment. So the next night, I lit the fire, and when it wasn't that hot yet, and the metal ring around it had kind of heated up enough that it wouldn't feel good, but it's not going to, like, harm her or do any kind of real damage, she goes up to the fire again, and I said, Ellie, don't touch, it's hot. She goes, and she looks at me, touches it, <laughs> and then goes, hot. 
And you could see in her face, like, now I know what hot means. <laughs> and it was awesome because she's still, like, she, she still, for the rest of that trip and all of the camping trips we've had since then, she still loves the fire and, like, loves to look at it and sit by it with us and stuff. But she gives it a really wide berth. Like, if that's the fire, she'll be walking through the camp and she'll look at me and she'll be like, hot. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, it's hot. This is what God is trying to do for Israel. God is saying, listen, I'm going to show you my power so that you know exactly what you're dealing with here. Because you should have a healthy fear of a God this powerful and mighty and holy. But not a fear that drives you to run or flee or hide, but a fear that causes you to obey. It reminds me of the famous passage in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of the famous C.S. Lewis Narnia books where... um, The Pevensey children have just learned from Mr. Beaver that uh, the king of Narnia is a lion named Aslan. And so Lucy asks Mr. Beaver, is he safe? You guys know the answer to this, right? Mr. Beaver says, safe? Of course he isn't safe. Who said anything about safe? You know, the obvious point is he's a lion. Why would you assume he's safe? And then he says, but he's what? He's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's the idea here. Look at the power and might of this God and be obedient. So following on from this, we get kind of the rest of the giving of the law, and that's punctuated by one particularly important story that we're going to tell next week. But this is the foundation. This is the beginning of that giving out of the law that's supposed to define Israel. And hearing it the way that we're hearing it today, in the middle of kind of this long series where we're looking at the entire story, allows us to avoid a couple of potential pitfalls that are really common with the Ten Commandments. The first one is this. It's really easy to think about the Ten Commandments as like these kind of abstract moral statements that are just spoken out of a vacuum directly to individual people. Like, here's the ten things, and there's no context at all. And so if you hear them that way, you're not sure how you're supposed to relate to them. But if you see them in the story and you realize that God is taking Israel out of Egypt where he has rescued them from, and he is sending them into the promised land to be his representatives, and he is saying, these are my guidelines for you as a nation, you see that they are for Israel and that they are statements about communal obedience more than they are about individual righteousness. And that's really important because it helps us to avoid another potential misunderstanding, which is to see the Ten Commandments as like the ultimate, highest, clearest revelation of God's will for humanity. That's how many of us naturally think about them. Like, if you want to know what God wants from humanity, it doesn't get any better than the Ten Commandments. But if we think of the entire scope of Scripture, where we've been so far and where we're going, this, this is Exodus chapter 20. We're only 70 chapters into the book so far. There's a lot of road ahead of us still. And what we're seeing here is like the, the early first light breaking out on an unfamiliar landscape. If you've ever been backpacking or camping or if you've been on like a long drive where you drive all night and the sun starts to come up and you're in an unfamiliar and maybe beautiful area, you know that experience of looking around and being like, wow, this place looks amazing, but I can't tell yet if that's, like are those trees or mountains over there? And like, is that a cloud bank or a city? I can't tell, like we need more light. You can see the beauty of what you're seeing. You, you know there's something, but it's not as clear as it's going to get when the sun comes all the way up. And for the sun to come all the way up on God's intentions for humanity, we're going to have to wait over a thousand more years for him to show up in person and show us. But in the meantime, we get what the purpose of the law is. It's to make Israel a people who can represent God 
really well before the nations. Super easy quiz. How well does Israel do with this? Poorly, right? Israel, and, and again, man, if you need like a clear example, just wait till next week because they don't even get through the giving of the law before they break half of the Ten Commandments. For real. Israel is not going to be successful at representing what God is like to the nations of the world. They're going to have some bright spots. There's a, a time in the reign of King Solomon where like nations are coming to see the wisdom of God given to this king, but that doesn't even last for the rest of his reign. If you were here last year for our series in David, you see that the second half of Solomon's life is characterized primarily by him worshiping other gods and making idols. Israel does not succeed as a nation in demonstrating what God is like to the rest of the nations around them. That goal for them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation doesn't come to pass in national Israel. So you have to ask the question, and it's a really important theological question. So like, did the plan fail then? Like, is God looking at Israel and all their failure and saying like, dang, that is so not how I thought this was going to turn out. Is that what God is like? He's up there going, I had this great idea, but these guys have ruined it, and so we've got to come up with something new. There's a temptation to describe Israel as just this utter failure. Like, you, they never did anything right, and the plan failed, and so God had to do something completely different. But that is not the way that the authors of the New Testament describe what happens with Israel. Look at how Matthew writes about Jesus. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. One of, itself kind of like the moment of dawn really breaking over the landscape of God's desire for humanity. And he says this, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is one of many statements Jesus makes that make it really clear that he sees himself as the thing towards which all of Old Testament revelation is pointing. It's all about him. And here he says, I'm not here to abolish the law or the prophets. I'm here to fulfill them. It's really easy to read that and think that he's saying two opposites because that's how we usually talk. Like he's saying, I didn't come to end it. I came to continue it. What he says is, I didn't come to abolish it, I came to fulfill it. And those words are not opposites. Those words are two different ways for something to come to an end, two crucially different ways for something to come to an end. Now, it's clear enough in English, abolish and fulfill, but it is very clear in Greek. He says, I did not come to kadalusai, the law of the prophets, I came to pleirosai, the law and the prophets. Kataluo is, is a verb that means way more than just abolish. It means to smash, demolish, destroy, rip something apart, undo it completely. He says, that's not what I came to do to the law and the prophets. I came to play rao, the law and the prophets, which is a word that means to complete, to bring to its conclusion, to fulfill. It's the same word that gets used all over the New Testament anytime a prophet or a prophecy is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. When he fulfills a prophecy, it's that same word. So Jesus is saying, I didn't come to throw the meal out in the trash. I came to eat it. I didn't come to like cancel the basketball game. I came to get the game-winning slam dunk at the very end. I'm here to finish this, not to destroy it or dismantle it. Later, Paul will say it like this. He says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And just like Jesus and Matthew, Paul chooses his words incredibly carefully. That word end isn't kataluo or plerao. It's a very powerful Greek word, telos. Paul says, 
Jesus is the telos of the law. Telos is a word that means purpose or goal or maturity. It's something being brought to the end for which it was intended from the beginning. That's, it's, it's a word that there's just no equivalent to in English. It's like purpose, but more powerful. This is something reaching the desired conclusion that it started with. So Paul says, what did Jesus do? Jesus came and brought the law to the fulfillment for which it was made. And what was that? To be a light to the nations. What does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law? It means for him to do in himself what it was supposed to do. There's a very real sense in which the nation of Israel failed to fulfill what they were supposed to. But when Jesus comes as the true good Israelite and he fulfills the law, that is Israel doing what it was supposed to do. A light to the nations, a kingdom of priests, representatives of God to the world. That's what Jesus does. And so then the question is like, so okay, what, like, what do we do then? Jesus, later on in the book of Matthew, is getting questioned by Pharisees and Sadducees. There's a bunch of debate at this point in the first century that's going on between Pharisees and Sadducees and other religious groups about the law and how it's supposed to work. And a lot of the time when these groups are trying to trick Jesus or like trip him up and get him to like say the wrong thing, they're really trying to ask him questions about where he lands on these specific debates. So it says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. The Pharisees like that Jesus silenced the Sadducees. Like if there was YouTube, a Pharisee would have posted a video of Jesus silencing the Sadducees and it would have been like, like Jesus totally owns Sadducee loser and like everybody would be commenting on it, talking trash about the Sadducee. They're, they're happy that he did that. So they come with a follow-up question. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Say, okay, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? Let's see him answer this one. And Jesus answers by collapsing all ten of the ten words into the great commandments. Love God and love other people. See, this moment is representative of what Jesus' teaching and ministry does. It's the full daylight shining on that landscape of what God's intention for humanity is. Jesus shows, no, like, you heard that you shouldn't murder people, but you know what? It's actually about loving people. And you cannot murder someone and still not love them. There's like a gigantic gray area <laughs> between murder and love. Like, I don't do great at most of the Ten Commandments most of the time, but I'm, I'm like, that was a, almost an ironic word choice. I'm doing great at the not murdering one. Thank you for being duly impressed. <laughs> Jesus says the point is to love them. That's what stands behind the, the greater fulfillment of what God is teaching Israel at Sinai is to love others. And so it's not enough to not murder them. We shouldn't even hate them. And then Jesus goes and does that exact thing that he says. He says like, hey, you heard not to commit adultery. Well, you cannot commit adultery and still not love. To fulfill the law of love would be to not even lust in your heart. Jesus unveils the greater meaning behind the Ten Commandments. He shows the full light of day on that landscape. And it's in his teaching and his actions that we see the fullest revelation of God's intention 
for humanity. And not just as an example, this is the best news of all, but as the one who goes and does it for us. Paul says it like this. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So you're free, but that's not just to do whatever you want. But through love, serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You can find at least six of these in the New Testament, by the way. Paul has two others. James has one and John has one. There's, they're all over the place. The whole law, what is it? Love one another. Love God. If you do that, and this is the key, like it's, it's the wrong question to ask, like are we as Christians supposed to do the Old Testament? If you do what Jesus said, you will fulfill the Ten Commandments. Because what Jesus says and demonstrates is beyond that. And so, as Christians, we're under this new covenant of love brought in by Jesus, demonstrated by him, fulfilled by him, and called to follow his example and do what he said. Here's the best news. When we do that, we get that same vocation that Israel was given at Sinai. Look at what Peter says about Christians. He says, this is all Exodus 19. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Sound familiar? A people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this is the key. We have got to keep the order of operations correct here. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When Israel is given the law at Sinai, God does not say, all right, you want to be my people? Here's what you have to do. If you do this perfectly, you get to be my people. God calls Israel his firstborn son when they're in slavery. And he rescues them and ransoms them and says at the beginning of the law, I am Yahweh your God. I rescued you from Egypt already. Now here's the obedience that I look for in return. God gives the law to a people who have already been saved, for whom he has already acted and rescued. And Christians, it's it's the same for us. Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You already have. You have received mercy. You are God's people. So, be a kingdom of priests. Represent God on earth. That role given to Israel, perfectly completed and fulfilled by Jesus, is passed on to the church. If you are a Christian, you are God's image bearer on earth. You are the representative of God to the nations. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. What an incredible gift. So we're going to take communion together. And as the ushers pass that out, I want to invite you just to to consider the actions of God on your behalf in Jesus Christ. How Jesus not only fulfills the Ten Commandments perfectly, completely, but how Jesus, in doing so, fulfills them while the full weight of humanity's rebellion against them is pointed directly at him. Jesus completes and fulfills the Ten Commandments while humanity is pointing their rebellion dead at it. So Jesus, Jesus serves and has only one God. And yet he goes to save and represent a nation that has turned to many false gods. Jesus makes no idols. Jesus actually is the image of God 
perfectly, but he goes to a nation that has consistently chosen to serve idols over and over and over again. Jesus bears the name of God with perfect accuracy, but will go to the cross condemned using the name of God against God's will, using the name of God falsely to accuse and condemn him. Jesus brings in the true full Sabbath rest, but he'll lie dead in the grave on the seventh day. Jesus honors his father and mother even though his earthly family doesn't believe that he's the Messiah. Jesus doesn't murder. In fact, he doesn't even hate his enemies. In fact, he speaks blessing and forgiveness over his enemies while they are murdering him. Jesus is the faithful husband to his bride and he goes before an adulterous people. Jesus, Jesus doesn't steal anything. In fact, Jesus looks down from the cross as Roman soldiers take his only earthly possessions and steal them and divide them among each other. Jesus doesn't bear false witness. Jesus is condemned to death on the testimony of false witnesses. And finally, and maybe the most powerfully today, Jesus doesn't covet anything that isn't his given to him by the Father. Even when it's offered to him by Satan himself, Jesus takes only what's his and covets nothing. And instead, he goes to die because of the jealousy and covetousness of the people who wanted his influence among the people. And so know that you serve a God and king who went to die for you to fulfill the ultimate example of what it means to love God and love others, not just your friends, but your enemies. And because of that, Jesus has become the light to the nations. Why do we get an invite into the family? Because Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus did what it was always designed to do, to invite the nations into the family of God. So let's stand together. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and after he had broken it and given thanks, he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this is my blood poured out for you, for the remission of sins, for a new covenant. Do this in remembrance. Father, I'm so thankful to you for the gift of your son, the one who was obedient where I could not be obedient, the one who satisfies laws that I would have failed time and time again to satisfy, the one who does what your intentions always were to usher in the nations to your family. Lord, I thank you for the gift of your son and his obedience. I pray that today you would propel us out into the world as representatives of you, as a kingdom of priests, as people who recognize that we have been given through the Holy Spirit, the law written on our hearts, that's no longer this outward thing imposing itself upon us, but it is this inward thing motivating and pushing us out. Lord, let us represent you well. Help us to know that in our failure we lean on you and your ultimate success. In Jesus' name, amen.